Ah, hi everyone and welcome back for those of you who are joining me for the first time and welcome back to our third session in the kingdom discovering the kingdom um, of God and for those of you who are joining me for the first time welcome aboard I invite a few friends of mine that I'm hopefully will join us tonight on the broadcast on the session um, for those of you who are in the home and resting hopefully from this virus and for this time of rest I hope you're taking the full advantage of it but you need not walk in fear because God is with us my uh, wife gave me something he said I should share for anyone who maybe have fear or doubt or maybe nervous about what is going on so she said would you mind sharing is everybody a way of encouraging them to let them know that they're going to be all right and here's the scriptures in Psalms 118 verse 17 so those of you can read it you can see it for yourself I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord Psalm 118 verse 17 so write that down as a pastor scripture that you can look up for yourself to discover that your life's been destined and purpose so if God has a purpose you will not die but live it's interesting because I was sitting here this past week and Holy Spirit just started to drop some thoughts in my mind while we're continuing the kingdom concept um, I want to talk about our present state um, that we're in right now in America. Um, for those who are joining from Violin, welcome. My mom should be on. Um, I have other friends of mine coming on from North Carolina. Um, hi, everyone. From those from other states, thank you for joining me tonight. For new guests that are coming on for the first time. And let me say this. If you're going to be on, if you're on the program with me tonight and you're not able to stay, stay the whole time, you're more than welcome to log off at any time um, and to do what you have to do because the session will be recorded and will be posted on Facebook so if you have to go then there's no problem um, no worries um, do what you must do but if you can stay on you're more than welcome and by the way in the process of my speaking you can enter comments and or question in the comment section and I'll get back to you as soon as possible with a response and or an answer um, tonight's session will be very challenging my hope is that you brought your mind with you because I want you to think and use your, your mind for reasoning because I'm going to ask some very interesting question tonight that the Holy Spirit laid in my heart to challenge your mind to think and to how to see things from a biblical perspective. Then I'm going to make a statement at the end of my question and as to where we're going to tonight, what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I have three areas we'll be looking at and I'll mention to you as we get towards the end. So let me get started because I'm going to have a a lot of information to give to you, a lot of scriptures. As I said before, for those of you who are coming on for the first time or never heard one of my teaching, most of what I've learned when I'm teaching come from a revelation from the Holy Spirit. So I spend a lot of time with the Holy Spirit listening, learning, and growing. So it's instructed me in the ways of God. As a result of that, I've learned how to read the Bible and understand it. Um, I've learned how to pray effectively. He's taught me how. He's taught me how to walk in righteousness. So from my experience and my time spent with him, it's where I'm now teaching others because out of that experience and the encounter, and it's a continuous thing, by the way, um, as I speak and you watch me speak, you find I don't use a lot of notes because this is in my heart. Does not your Bible tell you from the innermost being shall flow rivers of living water? What does that mean? Well, it's my job to put the word in my heart and from my innermost being, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring it out and bring it to my remembrance. So all I am, I'm just the mouthpiece that he's using to speak what he wants to say. So I'm that yielded vessel. 
And that's what God wants in the one of our lives. All right, let me get started in session tonight. As I said before, I'll give you scripture. If you need to slow down your video to get the scripture, you can always go back and watch the video again. But welcome aboard to all of you, and it's going to be an exciting night tonight. But you'll see, well, you're in for a journey. Let me get started. Okay. Something I was sitting here this past week, Holy Spirit, just dropped these thoughts in my mind. And by the way, everything I tell you, I always will back it up scripturally. So you'll know that I'm not speaking off the top of my head, but I'm speaking from a place of revelation, and I have the scripture to confirm what I'm saying. Tonight, I am the attorney presenting my case. You are the judge and the jury. And if what I'm saying to you is right, you get to judge that. And you come to conclusion on your own what I'm saying is right and or it is wrong. All right, so let's get started. So tonight we're looking at some, answer some of these questions that I'm going to be posing to you. I want to answer them biblically. Here's number one. The first question is going to be about this coronavirus. Here's my question for you. How do you see it? How are you processing the coronavirus? Is it a blessing to you? Is it a curse? Or is it a judgment from God? How do you see it? I want you to think about that. How is it you're seeing this? I know many are cursing it because they want to go back to work. They want to make money. I know others are thankful for it because they believe it's a judgment from God. And I know others are calling it a blessing because some of you needed rest. And now you have, you're forced to rest. So depends on how you approach it and what your concept is will determine how you see what is going on. That's the first question. I want you to put that in the back of your mind. Question number two, who shut down this country? I want to show you something tonight. I'm going to talk about later on where the power lies. The word power, one of the misconceptions we have is that we're thinking power means do the most of the power and I'm a strong man. No, but the word power, when you study uh, biblically, means authority and right. So question, who shut down this country this past three or four weeks? Did the church shut it down or did the government shut it down? Hmm, think about that. Hmm, because we're talking about power, right? We have sung song in our church that we've got the power in the name of Jesus. Really? What power are you talking about? We need to discuss that tonight. We'll talk more about that. Here's the next one. This past three weeks, you could not go to church, right? Many people who are listening to me, some of you, and as I was brought up in the church, we could not go to church. So because we couldn't go to church, and from our, what our understanding is, when you're not going to church, your natural tendency is to think, because you're not in the building, that somehow you are backsliding. So here's my question to you. You have been able to go to church for the past three weeks. It's going to be four weeks, maybe five weeks, maybe six weeks. So does that mean because you're not going to the building that you're a backslider? I need you to think about this. Does it mean because I'm not going to the building called a church, does it mean I'm a backslider? Hmm. I need you to think about it for a minute. Because when a statement I'll make later on, if the church... And the building is the church, and you're not there. They can call you backslider. But if the question becomes, if you are the church, it doesn't matter whether you go to the building or not, you should not be backsliding. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, number four. We're all seeing that the world and our churches had to make changes and adapt, correct? Yes. So here's my question. Is change good or is change bad? Because all of our institutions, including yourself, had to make changes, and you had to adapt. Hmm. So is change good or is change bad? 
let me make a statement. Change is mandatory for us to gain knowledge and to grow. Change is mandatory for us to gain knowledge and for us to grow. Is that a true statement or is it a false statement? Here's the next question. Then why aren't you changing? Here's my question. Let's assume you decided that you didn't like the government shutting down your church, but you decided that you want to go there and all the church members decide they want to go back to church. And while in the church, let's, let's assume that the pastor was on television, and some of you may have seen it in Tampa, who had a church service this past week with over 500 people in attendance. Now, I understand what he was trying to do. But my question to you, let's assume you go back there in that building with 500 people. You're carrying the disease. And you went there not knowing you had it, but you went there. And now, out of that service, 500 people get infected. Question. Will God keep the people from getting the disease? Hmm. Well, I have faith in that God can heal them all. Okay. But question. Because you went there when you're told not to, will you become a blessing to them or were you a curse to them? Did you help them or did you hurt them? Hmm. Well, we have faith. If you understand that you're the church and the government said don't go, then if you understand that you're the church, then you can stay home. You can be okay. We don't talk about how to be at home, be away from the building, and walk in righteousness and walk in obedience. And I'm going to teach you and show you how to do that. Because we've got to learn to stop taking our trust off men and put it on the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about that one. So we haven't been there in the past four weeks. Doesn't mean that we're backsliding. Here's the next thing. Would it scare you to know that if you don't change, you will die? Hmm. Let me say it again. Would it scare you to know that if you don't change, you will die? And I'm going to give you an example of this to show you what I'm telling you is correct. Example. If you don't adapt by putting on the face mask or keeping six foot separate or not get around a whole big group of people, will your faith keep you from getting the coronavirus? Remember, you're in violation of a law. Once you violate law, you tie the hand of God to be a blessing to protect you. Your protection lie within your ability to obey the law. So if you break the law, you're outside of protection. You risk getting that disease. Here's another thing. I'm talking about change. So we had to learn how to adapt. We had to stop assembling together in big groups. We had to learn that. Now we find out that most of our churches, they had to go to what is called satellite churches. Technology, which at one time we cursed, now becomes our blessing. Isn't that interesting? So technology is not bad, is it? We just have to learn how to adapt. Can I just make another statement? Hmm. That tells me then if technology we're using now to reach the people we can't meet together face to face, that means then the word of God is adaptable to every situation, to every time frame, and to every culture, and to every time, time in history. For the 2020, 2050, 2075, this message, the word of God, is adaptable, not changing the foundation of truth, but it's adaptable to whatever our circumstance has taken place in our world. Hmm. We had to learn, as the people of God and the pastors are learning, they have to learn how to adapt, not change the truth, but adapt to the situation that's taking place around us. Here's another proof that change is mandatory or you die. We now operate in a yearly process called the change of seasons. Isn't that correct? What are we in right now? We're in the time called spring. 
what we did what we did what did we just come out of it's called winter after we finish spring what do we go into summer what do we go in after summer winter here's my question let's assume you decide you have faith and you decide you don't want to change you kind of like spring you kind of like summer so in springtime you're coming out of your winter clothes and you're putting on your shorts and your t-shirt and it's warm outside and you're good but at the end of summer, you recognize that the weather and the temperature is dropping. But you decide, because you have faith, I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep wearing my shorts and T-shirt. And the temperature outside dropped to 25 degrees. But you decide you want to be out there in that cold temperature. Question, for just one night alone, or maybe two nights, I'm not sure, will you live or will you die? <laughs> if you don't adapt and change, you will die. Hmm. Because the seasons demand change and ad adaptation. And so because of we realize I can't wear my summer and spring clothes into winter, I have to now bulk up with more heavier clothing because the temperature outside dictate that I adjust, I adapt, and I change. Because life will succeed when you adapt and you change. If you don't change, you and I will die. I don't care how much faith you got. Hmm. Now, I'm not being on faith. I'm just saying to you the stuff we've been saying, we've heard. I got faith to believe God. God will just make it be okay. He's going to protect me. No, he won't. Violation of law got built into it consequences and death. <laughs> if you don't change, change will kill you. I'm just saying. We'll get more questions. I'm getting into that minute. All right. Now we now understand the question number seven. Is now the question must ask. So is the building then the church? Or are you the church? You can't go to the building. You can go there and visit if you want to, but you can't get together in a huge group like you used to before. This whole process of adaptation because of this coronavirus now challenges us to now meet in a separate or be spaced out. So now the intention of forces to do what we never had to do before. And by doing that, we're actually protecting ourselves and protecting others. So let me go on to the next question made. So what, here's my next question to you. So what if the government comes in and say to all churches, you have to shut your doors and you can no longer gather in your buildings, right? How would you survive? Where would you go? And here's my next question. What if they told you you can no longer have any more preachers to teach you? How will you live? Hmm. I just want to throw this question out to get your mind to start to think about these things. Because if my life is built on someone constantly feeding me, feeding me, feeding me, what happens when the hand of one feeding me gets cut off? What happens if that one who has been taking care of me can't take care of me no more? Well, somewhere along the line, I think you have to learn how to walk independent of the hand that feeds you. Hmm. Somewhere along the line, all of us have got to grow up and become the adult instead of remain as children, always depending on somebody else to give us some milk. <laughs> I'll give you the scripture. Don't worry. I'm just asking a question. I need you to think about these things. Number nine, what would you do and how would you grow if you no longer had a man or a pastor 
or a bishop or a minister or a priest or a rabbi to teach you. How will you and would you grow? Hmm. I need to think about these things because I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove. I'm making the point here. The reason I'm asking this question is because there's three years we're going to look at tonight. It's going to prove to you how you're supposed to grow, how you're supposed to walk, and what's supposed to be happening in our life. Who would you turn to? But thank God, you're blessed tonight because I have some answers for you about these questions I'm asking. I have the answer for you. I'm going to show it to you biblically as to what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to function in this time. Number 10. From the time you have been saved until now, have you been taught how to walk independent of your teacher or have you been taught how to be codependent on your teachers? Mom and dads, let me give you an example. You know this very well because you are parents. You love your children, right? So from the point, time they were born up until 18, 19, you love them, you take care of them, you fed them, you clothe them, you did everything for them. But deep down in your heart, you know, somewhere along the line, this child, do I love him? Got to get up out of my house. Can I, can I tell you why? He eating my food. He buried my electric. He ain't paying for nothing. His feet up on the couch. He don't really clean the house. He's not bringing no income. But he's hanging out here at 20 years old about, hey, mom, when dinner going to be cooked? You're about ready to choke him. And you'll think to yourself, this boy too big for me to be taking care of this crazy boy. Get up out of my house. So you, after a while dealing with it, you realize that you give your children dignity by allowing them to grow up. Now, here's the statement that's going to shock you. Your children can only become you when they're away from you, not when they're with you. Mm. Have you read this in the Bible? The student's not greater than his teacher. The student becomes the teacher. When the student walks independent of his teacher, he'll become his teacher because of who you guys is training from. So guess what, mom and dad? You've seen this done, by the way. It's happened to you. What is it you know? When you understand a child cannot remain a child for the rest of his life. He cannot grow up when you push the pressure on him to go out and take on responsibility to now pay his own rent, buy his own car, pay the electric. And now all the things that you're trying to tell him when he was with you, getting it for free, he now has to pay for it. And guess what's going to happen to him because you kicked him out the door to experience what you've been protecting him from. He's going to say, no, I understand what mom and dad are trying to teach me. I understand. Now, guess what he's going to say next? When his come come, he's going to say, hey, turn off that light. Close the door. Listen to me. Money don't grow on tree. <laughs> Have you seen this before? They start to sound like you because, see, when they were with you, they didn't understand why you were putting these rules in because you were paying for everything. Now when they get out, they become you, and they're going to hear the statement, you sound just like your mother and your father. Interesting, huh? That's called dignity. You give your children dignity when you allow them to spread their wings and fly by themselves. They have no dignity when they're in your home. And as a mother, you're still treating your grown adult like their children. Mm, wow. I think somebody needs to hear that tonight. Because your children, if they're still living in your house, after 30, 25, 30, 40 years, it's no longer a blessing to you. To be exact, what the world would see. Could you imagine you have a 35-year-old young man in your house, still have a mom cook dinner. He's paying no bill. He's walking around because mom keep on giving the milk. You take him to the mall. He's walking around with a baba and a binky. 35-year-old man with a big old crusted diaper. My question to you, and for those of you who listen to me, 
Is there anybody on the planet who will think that that's natural or normal? Automatically, I'll conclude that is abnormal because there should be no 35-year-old man with a wearing a diaper, with a, walking around with a blanket and a bubble in his mouth, all right? It's a dysfunction. A man's supposed to be a man, but you don't allow him to become man because you keep on babying him. Can I say to you, many of us in our churches have been kept babies, 65-year-old babies, 40-year-old babies. You're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat by yourself. Uh-oh. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feeling, but I have to call the truth out. All right. That's not where I'm going with this, but I need you to hear that. Hmm. So if you and I have not been taught how to walk independent of your teachers and your preachers, right now this time away from that building called the church is a struggle for you. Can I tell you why? You don't feel worthy. You have not been prepared. You feel totally inadequate. You read the word, you get no understanding. You don't know how to discern the voice of the spirit. You're struggling because you're around your family and you're supposed to be leading them, but you don't know how because you've been kept as a slave and a servant. You've never been made a son a saint, a citizen, or a brother. Your standard have never been brought it to be equal to the pastor, so they make you lesser than. Mm. They make you lesser than instead of being equal to. Mm. The kingdom gives you your authority back to be equal with your teacher. I am no greater than anyone who's listening at the sound of my voice tonight. You and I, my goal in the kingdom is to make you equal. Jesus' goal in teaching the disciples not to make them lesser. They were supposed to become him. That's what the Bible tells you. No one's greater than his teacher. They were supposed to become him. And what happened? When Jesus left the planet and went back to heaven, what did you see the disciples demonstrate? The power, the authority, the signs of wonders, the miracle. They became Jesus. Do you understand? He didn't make them lesser. He made them equal too. So we need to bring that understanding into this process. Let me go to my next question. Since the time you and I got saved, have you been taught how to walk in righteousness and self-control yet? Have you been taught? Do you know how to do it? Do you even know what the word righteousness means? Do you know what self-control means? We must ask this question because what they have done to us inside part to say many of our building, they have made us religious but never taught us how to walk in righteousness. Let me explain to you why righteousness becomes so important. Because all the covenant of scripture is based on your building on your ability and minds to diligently hearken and obey all these commandments. It is based on righteousness. Then all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. It's based on you meeting the first criteria. You must be righteous. By the way, the reason why most of our prayers not being answered is not a faith issue. It's a righteousness and obedience issue. Remember, the Bible never said everybody's prayer would be answered. This Bible said the only prayer we answered immediately is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Ah. Help us, Lord. He said the prayer that works, that's effective and fervent, is the prayer of righteousness. Why is the condition of righteousness in there? Look at Jesus. What was the first standard Jesus met before he gets anything done or answered? He was a righteous man. And then what he asked, according to the Father's will, the Father gave it to him. So what makes us think we can live in unrighteousness and expect God to answer? <laughs> All right, let me move on. That's not where I'm going. So the question we must ask then, in all the questions I've asked you, though, for this one question, who has the power and the authority on earth? 
We now know in Genesis 1.26, God gave mankind dominion, power, authority to rule the fish, the bird, the air, the ground, the animal, and creeping things. We have the dominion power. But may I say to you today, and can I say to you today, which of these organizations really yield the right power that affects the globe? Now, we know we have spiritual power in the churches. Well, my question is, right now, who's manifesting the power? The church or the government? Hmm. My question to you, to show you, um, is, it, is the government subject to the church or is the church subject to the government? Hmm. Question, who's sending you a check in the mail the next two or three weeks for unemployment? The church or the government? Uh-oh. Question. Next question. Who are they going to talk to and going to bring into this corona issue to solve the virus situation? Is the government going to the churches and asking the pastor to come in and lay hands? Or are they going to the scientists to have them do their research to find a solution to this problem? Hmm, something to think about. So who's really yielding power? I want to show you that what Jesus brought to the planet was not a religion because he knew the power didn't lie in the religion. The power lie in the hands of a government. Hmm. Now, we'll discuss the other part of the spiritual side, but I need to give you the scripture back what I'm saying to you. Here's the next question. Who upholds and administers the law in the land? Question. Isn't there now an executive order that went out that said that anybody who gathers, and in New Jersey today, the government just took it even further. He said if he finds anyone violating the law, the government has stipulated this past week, and they gather in a group that jeopardizes the safety or violate the rule pertaining to separation and state, can fine them up to $10,000 and put them 18 months in jail. Question. Did that statement come from our churches, from our pastor, from our denomination? Or did it come from the government? And if you're violated, who's coming to get you? The pastors? The deacon? The elder? The bishop? Or is it the popo? <laughs> you need to understand what is happening around you. Where the power sincerely and genuinely lie. You need to be able to see it and understand it. Now let me give you the scripture to show you what Jesus brought was not a religion. He brought a country and or governing. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Let me read it for you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Listen to these words. This was a prophecy told, I mentioned this last week, 700 years before it was manifested in Matthew chapter 3. This was the statement. For unto us a child is born, verse 6 of Matthew of um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government Hmm. See that word there? Will be up on his shoulder. Did he say gospel? Did he say religion? Or did he say the government? Hmm. Let's go on. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government. Are we seeing this? He didn't say gospel. He didn't say religion. He didn't say church. Because if his church is what he's after, he said, the increase of my church. He didn't say that. He said, the government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, that word's very important. When you see the word throne, it's talking about a king. 
because presidents don't rule on thrones. They rule from the White House or from some big house. Only prince and kings rule from thrones. Upon the throne of David, and we now know David was a king. So once again, he set the prophecy, so we understand. And he, upon the throne of David, over his kingdom. Well, you now know a kingdom is a territory or land ruled by a king. The word kingdom is two words put together. A king ruling over domain. So it's called a king domain. A king is a sovereign birthed into power through bloodline. He then has land and territory to sustain his position as king because a king without position, without land, is a dethroned king. So the word king domain is put together into one word called a kingdom. A kingdom is land and territory that the king rules over. All right? So I need to help you there. To order it and to establish it, it with judgment and justice from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So in other words, it's coming, it's coming at a time. He's going to establish the kingdom and he's going to continue to increase and grow. Let me take you through. Here's my next statement to you. This is a tough one. We need to hear me this one. What if all religion on this planet is man-made? Think about that. What if all religion on this planet is man-made? Huh. What if God never ordained it? Okay. All right. I'll leave it at that. We'll talk about it later on. And if what Jesus brought to the earth was not a religion, but a kingdom, a kingdom, which is a country or a government with laws, citizen, that the king chooses. So I need to leave you with those questions to think about that. And as I'm starting to teach now, I'm going to try to answer some of these questions for you to show you in Scripture what we never saw before. Here are the three areas we'll try to cover tonight in this session. Number one, as I said, I am the, the, the attorney presenting a case. I will prove scripturally that the building is not God's house. I'll prove that to you biblically so you can see for yourself. Then you can go and do the research and check what I'm saying to you is correct. I'm going to prove to you that the building, man-made structures, is not God's house. And by the way, God don't live there. What am I to tell you? If you're not in the building, that's not the house of God. It's just a building with a T on it. <laughs> I know. I know. It sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Like I'm just, in, I'm not trying to attack the church. So understand this, folks. I'm not trying to attack the church. But you need to understand I was in this stuff for 40-something years. And I thought I was doing everything that God told me to till the Holy Spirit pulled me and started to teach me the ways of God. So I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to them. I understand where they're coming from. And there's a need for what's, what they do because there are people who just don't have no control discipline without the help of those organizations. So I'm not using that. But I think what we have done, we have built the church to become an idol. We have built our pastors to become idol. You're going to see what God has to say about worshiping idols. He has a problem with it because we misunderstood what he designed us to be and to become and what we're supposed to do. Number two questions. First question, I'm going to prove scripturally that the building is not God's health. Second Area I'll prove. I will prove that your body is the only building or temple that God dwells in. I will prove it to you scripturally that you are the carrier of the Holy Spirit, and that's the only place on this planet where God dwells. So let me say this to you, encourage some of you. That means in the past three weeks, you have not been to the building. 
doesn't mean you didn't go to church. It just means that you are that church, that you don't need to go to a building to meet with God. You, wherever you are, and you gather with two or three in my name, in your own home, is called the church. You ain't got to go to no building to meet with God, because God is a very present help in time of need. Where does he live? At the sound of your heartbeat. He's as close as your heart. Why aren't you tapping into him? Because you don't know he's dwelling in you. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Let me keep going. I'm not done. I'm not there yet. All right. Next. Number three. I will also prove that there's only one teacher sent by God to teach you, to lead you, and to be with you to the end. And the Bible said, "Is it's never said that your pastors, your priests, or your rabbi or your teachers shall be with you to the end." There's only one teacher, counselor, advocate, helper that was promised to you to be with you is called the Holy Spirit. And I will teach you how to let to, to tap into him, how to activate him, and how to walk in the spirit. So if you never go back to the building, you can still walk with God. Ah. Can I ask a simple question here? This is going to be crazy. And it's going to sound a little bit off office. Can I ask this one question? Who was Jesus, Rabbi? Think about that one. All right, let me get started. I got to get started in this process because I have to get you to prove this point I'm trying to make. Okay, here's the scripture. God do not dwell in building made by men. God does not dwell there. I'm going to give you a scripture. If you turn your Bible to Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 27, I want to show you the first place in the Bible where it is proven that God does not dwell in building. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 27. Let me start with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Idols were statues. Today, we don't have that many statues in our home, but we still have our idols. I know it's easy for us to bash the Catholics because they have the actual idols, but do you know we have a lot of idols? <sighs> do I touch that, Lord? Do I touch them idols? Oh, my God. Television is an idol. Your phone can become an idol. What you put a lot of effort, energy, and time in can become an idol. Where your focus is become an idol. Our relationship can become an idol. Your pastor become an idol. Your church can become an idol. So don't tell me we don't have idols. We just don't call them that because we want to spiritualize them. Oh, that's the house of the Lord. Really? Hmm. Really? Okay. <laughs> okay. We won't touch that one. So he says, he saw that he was given up to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue. That the synagogue was their churches with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaimed, a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapagus, saying, we may know what this new doctrine of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ear. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Verse 22. Now then Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things that you are very religious. Do you see where the world religion appeared? It appeared where they were worshiping idols. Hmm. It didn't say he was religious. It said, I see that you are religious. 
<laughs> All right. Verse 23. For as I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing. Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. You mean we can worship things without knowing it? Hmm. Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world, underline this verse, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Underline that, please. When somebody says, oh, but bro, you need to go to church, really? Which church are you talking about? Are you talking about the building? Are you talking about me? Here's your response to that question when somebody asks you, you need to be in fellowship and you go to church. Really? So are you saying I'm not going to church because I'm not in the building? Uh, and I can hear the thought in people's mind, but what about fellowship? Oh, so you're saying I cannot fellowship outside a big edifice or a building made by men where you can seat between four, three, four, five, six hundred people? So if I'm not in that, I'm in church? Really? Jesus knew you made that statement. Can I tell you what his answer to that question is? But I say, when you see Jesus say, but I say, that's the king speaking, he's decreeing a new law. But I say, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. The word midst there doesn't mean standing outside your body in the room. The word midst there, I'm in the midst, in you, midst of you. I'm in the midst of you. I'm there with all of you when you're in my name. So you don't have to go to a building to be in fellowship. You just need to gather two or three people. Mm. Guess what I'm in right now? Just talking to you, even though I'm just the only one in this room. Because you're hearing me, we're in church. <laughs> I need to help you for you to see it. You're in church. You could be walled by two or three people. You're in church. You could be on the street corner. As long as two or three people gather in his name, you're in church. So the church is never meant to be stationary. The church is mobile and active. Hmm. I'll talk a minute about what has happened to our church now. It's forced us to now get out of the box. This virus has forced us to get out of the building. And for the first time, you can't go to the building. Now you're forced to deal with you. And some of you are scared because you have to live with you. You have to be around your family member you don't like. You have to learn how to communicate again. You have to learn to get along with your kids. You got to get close to that wife that you've been talking to and you've run into work to escape. God is forcing you. What you going to do? Hmm. <laughs> Ooh, that's not where I'm going with this one. Let me leave that one alone. That's not where I'm going. Okay. So we now discover in, in, um, in Acts chapter 70, verse 24, that, that God does not dwell in building made by man's hand, nor is he worshipped with man's hands. Oh, Lord, help me. We need to deal with this one. I need to break down for you what we've been doing. We call it worship. May not be worshipped. Uh-oh, do I touch that one? You need to see this one. I'm going to break this one down for you. Because what we have now narrowed God down to is what we call in our services, praise, and worship. And so now the measurement of success in our service has become goosebump bumps and the tinglies. <gasps> Did you feel the person's love? <gasps> really? Really? You have narrowed the, the source of power with God with goosebumps and tinglies. <laughs> Can I tell you what's going on there? That ain't the God. That ain't the Holy Spirit. That's your flesh. All right? All right. Let me help you out. Let me help you. I'm here to help. All right. We need to take the word worship and look at it. What does worship mean? 
And I guarantee what I'm about to tell you next, you have never heard before, because none of you worship leader taught it. You never understood it this way. I am going to break this word down to help you understand what worship is supposed to look like and what God called worship versus what you and I call worship. Our worship, we were taught by men, so God don't receive that. We've been trained and taught by men how to worship, but we've never gone to God to ask God, what do you call worship? And I need to break it down to show you what he said. All right, let me take you in. The word worship means the feeling or expression of reverence or adoration for a deity. A deity here represents God, right? Because he's a deity. He's a God. Another word for worship here is the word revere, reverence, venerate, pay homage to, honor, adore, praise, pray to, glorify, exalt, extol, hold dear, cherish, treasure, esteem, adulate, idolize, deify, hero worship, lionize, overpraise, follow, look up to. The informal word there they use, an informal word for worship is another word for putting someone upon a pedestal. Another word is to laud them. And the, ar the archaic word is to magnify. So you and I now say, when I worship God, I'm magnifying him. I'm lauding him. I'm glorifying him. I'm exalting him. Those are all pretty words. And while some of them is true, you don't know what you're saying. Because you don't know what the meaning of these words mean. So let me help you. Next. So within the word worship is two words attached to this word word. The word worship has the word worth and it has the word word. W-O-R-D and W-O-R-T-H. Worship and worth-ship. Hmm. And the word ship, by the way. Ship and two fell in the boat going in the middle of the sea. I'm going to show you what the word ship really means. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the first one. The word that we're going to need to look at first is the word worth. Right? So we're going to worship God. There has to be a worth attached to who we are worshiping. The word worth means excellence of character or quality as commanding esteem, a condition of being worthy. Another word that's used for the word worth is the word honor, renown. So we now said God is worthy. Isn't that true? That's a good word. That's a part of worship. God is worthy. So that's good. The next word we need to look at is the word word. Word. I'll get to the word in a minute. Let me get to the ship first. The word worship. Let's look at the word ship. The word ship is an, an, a narrative English suffix of a noun denoting condition, character, office, or skill, indicating rank, office, or position. Let me say it again. The word ship in worship is a narrative English suffix or a noun, den noun denoting condition, character, office, or skill, indicating rank, office, or position. The word that we commonly know and all of us are familiar with is the word lordship. Mm. The word lord means owner and master of. And because he's the owner and master, he now is worthy of honor. He has a position, a high ranking, and is in the office. Word forming element meaning quality, condition, act, power, skill, office, position, or relations between. So now we see two words. The word worship now has the word worth, which is excellence of character, quality, honor, and renown. And we have the word ship, meaning condition, character, office, or skill. Then there's the next word. Next part of it is the next word is called wordship. So question, when you're worshiping God, what are you giving him? Are you not giving him words? 
Lord, you're holy. Lord, you're so good. You're so kind. I praise you, Lord. Oh, you're so wonderful. Why are you giving words? And we think by giving God the words, that sounds honoring, uplifting. It's giving God the glory is another word that we use. That we then, after we give it to God, we say that's called worship. So my question to you, what if you're giving God what you don't understand? Most of the words you use, you never stop to figure out what you're saying. Hmm, I need to help you here. Because this is where our worship seems to hit the roof and bounce back. Because God said, you honor me with your mouth and with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Your words ain't getting past the roof. It's stuck in the rafters. It ain't getting up to heaven. Because you're worshiping me in, with, with an ignorance. You don't know what you're saying. You know what words you're using. It sounds right. Most of us sing our worship song, and the words that's on the screen many times is tearing us, us down. It, it, it has us worshiping God from a broken position instead of from being healed and whole and overcomers. So here are the songs. I'm broken inside, but, but God. Lord, I know I'm sick, but I can be healed. Lord, I know when I'm weak, you are strong. I know I can't, but you can do all things. Hmm. Hmm. God, I'm wicked, but you're righteous. Do you see what we're doing? By the way, every is used there. Do you know that the scriptures speak opposite of what you're saying? So when you use those words in scripture and in song singing to God, you are actually called bearing false witness? But by the way, you're not only get one penalty for doing that, by the way, in speaking words you don't understand. Because you're in a setting where others are repeating it, by law, you're called an accomplice, an accomplice as well. Because you're in a group setting where everybody's saying the same words off the screen. They don't know what they're saying. But because you're hearing and you're repeating it, it's called now, by law, it's called bearing false witness, right? Because you're there and you're repeating it too, you're called an accomplice. And you get a third penalty for that one. It is called speaking idle words. Ho-ho! Let me say it again. Because you don't know what those words are saying, and somebody else wrote it for you, and they've explained to you what these songs and these words mean, and you start to repeat it. Well, the words you're reading and you're repeating, we call in the court of law hearsay. Because you heard somebody wrote them up, they wrote it out, and they put it in the page, and you think it's spiritual because it's saying all the right words, and there's the name of Jesus in this and God in it. So you think God is accepting of that because we use the Bible to find the songs. But we never understood that when you repeat something you don't understand, it is called bearing false witness. Why? Because you don't know what was behind what they wrote. What was the intent? It was meant to worship, but you weren't there when it was written. So you know if the words are right or is it wrong? I heard a song this recently on the radio that says, maybe it's okay to not be okay. Really? Can I ask anybody this question? Where have you saw the scripture before? Is there anywhere it's okay to not be okay? I thought that Jesus was broken so we might be made whole. I thought he became sick so we might be healed. I thought he became poor so we might be rich. Hmm. I thought that he died that we may live. Hmm. Interesting. Everything we're saying, the Bible says the opposite. So we're bearing false witness. That's why God don't respond. So we now measure our worship down to goosebumps. That's a sign to you we ain't worshiping God right. Because if it's goosebumps feeling, it just magnifies your flesh. You ain't magnifying God because your word ain't reaching up to the heaven. Because God cannot violate his word. Hmm. My God. 
Let me help you. I'm not done yet. I got to get to words. Okay, let me get to the word. And the word worship, we talked about before. Let me say it again. We talk about worship. I gave you the meaning. I talk about words and I talk about shit. Let's talk about the word word. A word is a spoken thought. A thought is an unspoken word. Hmm. Let me say it again. A word is a spoken thought. A thought is a unspoken word. So when you speak the word, the word word means an expression of thought in words because of the skill, office, power, position, and character, and the attributes of God. So when you're giving God words, you must make sure you know what the words mean. Don't give him empty words. If you're going to say God is good, you got to understand what good means. Did you remember that Jesus said, they said, good master, good master. He said, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. That's my father in heaven. In other words, ask the man, by how did you come to the conclusion that I was good? What's your understanding of good? So the words we're used to, we have to be very careful because remember now, your words are eternal word. We tend to think our words stop at the end of our voice. It does not. It ripples into eternity. So that's why the Bible warns us. You and I will stand before God and give an account for everything done in the body, even for every idle word spoken. Uh-oh, what? You mean there's somebody recording my words? Yes, there is. So be careful what you say. Make sure you know what you're saying. That's why in the court of law, the judge cannot allow hearsay testimonies. They usually want a witness. Hmm. The one witness, the word witness means one who brings evidence, and they literally want eyewitnesses, not hearsay witnesses. Because the eyewitness, though he once he tells his what he saw and his story as to what happened, then the attorney or judge will try to turn the story and try to see if his story changes. If his story remains constant, he is called credible. A person who has hearsay is not credible because their story is going to change because they heard it from somebody else. That's why the judge in the court of law don't allow it. Hearsay is not permissible in the court of law. So most of what we quote from the Bible when we're talking to God are not from firsthand witnesses. It's from hearsay. <laughs> Here's the word. I think, feel, or believe. That's not credible because that's your personal opinion. That's not the facts. It's not evidence. Mm. Oh, God, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us. Okay. So when you worship God, I need to take this through. Does not your Bible says to you, let me give you the scripture. I don't have to repeat. Let me give you the scripture. John chapter 4, verse 19 through 24. Let me show you what true worship is. Let me show you scripturally. John chapter 4, verse 19 through 24. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Where did she worship? On the mountain. Which mountain was that? The mountain of God where their father went up to receive the law. Hmm. That's where they worshipped. So they believe the worship center was to leave from their home and go to that mountain. Does this sound familiar? Question. This past week, for all of you who have been off, like myself, how much worship have you had at your house? Well, I listened to the radio. No, I said, how much worship? Because in church, you don't listen to the radio. <laughs> How much worship? Because here's the part what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. If you haven't had the worship you normally do on Sunday morning, and the Sunday came, you didn't have the same worship, then my understanding, and based on this scripture, 
you're basically saying the only place where you can worship God is in church. And that can't be right. <sighs> because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if you're the church, you're supposed to have your worship comes out of you. But I'm going to ask some more questions. I'm going to take you even deeper than this. We're not, we're just scratching the surface right now. I'll take you deeper. And he said now, he said, the woman said to him, our fathers worship on this mountain, right? But you, Jews say, the place you should worship is in Jerusalem. Are you seeing this? So now each one have their own perspective where worship is supposed to be. One sit on the mountainside because that's where my church is. That's where God's presence is. One in Jerusalem, no, in the synagogue. That's where God is. So now they have these places they're going to to worship. And now God's about to blow both of them up before their very eyes. He's about to kill it. Let me show it to you. Let me stay with me. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither, oh, oh Lord Jesus, he killed the mountain, he killed Jerusalem, when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What? You mean, if I'm going, how do I worship? I can't go to Jerusalem or this mountain. Mm, I'll tell you, I'll show you. In Jerusalem or in mountain or this Jerusalem, but they worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we 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 know what we worship. He's talking about the Jews versus the Gentiles. He can go back and read verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But just because it comes from you, don't mean that's what you need to worship in some temple, because it came from them. The salvation, which is the law. Through the Messiah comes to the Jew. But the hour is coming. And now is. Not going to be. That's going to come later on. The hour is now. When is now? What does the word now mean? Now means now. That means today. That means right now between you and me. That means now. He said the, 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 the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Did he say in flesh? Hmm. He said in spirit and in truth. The true worshipers. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We must then use the word called, it's called deductive and inductive reasoning. Here's what it means. Deductive reasoning basically means if one statement is true, the opposite of the statement is also true. So here's my question to you. So if Jesus is saying, but they are coming and now is when the true worshipers, if they are true worshipers, isn't the opposite of that also true, that there are false worshipers? Hmm. We'll worship the Father, true ones. We'll worship him, the Father, in spirit and in truth. Ah, now, there are two words we got to look at. It's the word spirit and the word truth. I'll describe that in a minute. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God now is spirit. Is that true? God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are two words we got to look at. It's the word spirit and the word truth. The word truth means that which is backed by facts or evidence. Here should be your next question. Then what is truth? Can I give you scripture? Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. Amen. <laughs> I gave myself an amen on that one because it's actually in scripture, by the way. Thy word is truth. So when you worship God, you know, worship in spirit and truth. What's it saying? When you worship God, you worship God with his own words because God cannot lie. 
So if you give him a word that you come up with on your own without understanding God's word, then you're basically leaning to your own understanding. And instead of doing it, you're going to worship God, his spirit. Now, the word is we have to look at next the word in spirit. So we now know truth means that which is backed up with facts or evidence. The next question, how do I worship God in spirit? That's the question we must now answer. Because he's saying, I am not accepting your worship by hands. That's not good enough. You give me words you don't understand. You don't. You you give me worth. Then on top of that, you give me worth. Say I'm great, but you talk yourself down. Say you ain't worth nothing. We're contradicting ourselves. So in worship we debase ourselves, but in worship we try to lift up God. So God said, "How can you have two things come out of your mouth, blessing and cursing? How can you bless me with your lips and this divide yourself with the same lips? These things ought not to be." Hmm. I will show you what worship is supposed to look like and what it means to worship. But let me start with the spirit first. The question becomes, how do we walk in the spirit? If you want to know how to walk in the spirit, always if you have a question about what the Bible is trying to tell you, always go back and study Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the perfect example sent from God for him to demonstrate for us what God intended and what God wanted. So he had to make sure in every area he walked in obedience to all the laws and commandments of God. So study Jesus. Is there anywhere in the Bible that you read that Jesus was lifted up, holding hands, and said, hallelujah, hallelujah? Is there anywhere you read like that? Is there anywhere where you saw in Scripture, the Bible says, he was singing songs to his father? Hmm. Then how did he worship the father? I must show you. How did he do it? We'll get to that in a second. But let's go back to walking in the Spirit. We now know that Jesus walked the Spirit because when you look at walking the Spirit, it basically means that in his mind, is there any way you read in Scripture that Jesus had any thought in his mind that violated the law of God? And everybody can say, no. No in the Scripture saw him. He had a mind, have his own thinking, do what he wanted to do. He come to please the one who sent him. He come to obey and do what he commanded him to do. So we now know that Jesus had the mind of God. He had a pure mind. Because he obeyed God in his thinking. He didn't allow thought to go in there. He didn't play with thought that violated the law of God. So he was capturing thought and imagination. He was casting them down. And he made sure his mind was right towards God. Second, is there any way you read in scripture where Jesus now allowed a thought to get through. And in his heart, he chose to disobey God in any of God's commandments. Well, let me help you there. The answer again is no. Because we now know he had the heart of God because he walked and he made choices to obey God. He didn't make any decision to violate the law of God. So now he's got a pure heart, correct? Is there any way you're in your Bible where Jesus, after having a thought, made a choice to disobey God, that he manifests sin in his flesh? No. Jesus never committed a sin, right? Because the Bible says he was at all point tempted, yet he did not sin. So we now know by Scripture, by that description, Jesus walked in the Spirit. Hmm. So let me give you a picture of what walking in the Spirit looked like. When you're walking in the spirit is when you're able to control thoughts and imagination in your mind. Remember the Bible warns you, you're not supposed to play with thought and imagination. You're supposed to capture them and bring them to the obedience of Christ. You're supposed to cast down imagination and thought. You're not supposed to create images and pictures in your head by allowing thought to just wander around in your brain. You're supposed to control that. So when you lack control, you let it play out. That's why we're tempted because of the attack that comes from the head. The devil don't attack your body, he attack your mind. So when you let that thought come in, the lustful thought, greed, envy, murder, and you let it go in, and you don't capture it and cast it down, because that's where it begins. That's the seed. The devil sows a seed in your mind, a thought. And so now when it goes to phase two, you're faced with a choice. So if you want to learn how to walk in the spirit, capture thought and imagination, 
bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Make choice to obey God in your heart. Don't stop using the excuse, I know it ain't right, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is what we've been doing. That's what violates the law of God. Because we've been doing this, we don't have the heart of God. We've been walking in disobedience. Why? Because in the place two of choice, your temptation is promising you immediate gratification. So we just yield to the temptation and we make an excuse. I know they're right, but this is one time God. I'm never going to do it again. And as soon as you commit the act, the next word we use is I will. As soon as you manifest that choice, the word we use, I will. Will means you activate in purpose and intent to now manifest your thought and choice in your flesh. That's now called sin to you. Number three is committed. Three sins in one. Thought, choice, imagination, and, and, and manifestation. So the Lord been saying, if you learn how to control your mind, if you learn how to make the right choice, if you learn how to manifest in your flesh, the byproduct of these three options in your life, when you're controlling your mind, making the right choice to obey God, is called now walking in self-control. By the way, that's what is called walking in the spirit. Question, didn't Jesus walk in self-control? Hmm. Now you know how to do it. It is your thought and your choices and the manifestation that's creating your problem. So whenever you and I sin, you don't feel worthy enough to go before God. So now here's what's been happening. Because when we've been home this past three weeks with this corona issue going on, we have been lacking self-control. You don't know what to do. You keep yielding to your thoughts. You're given to imagination. You make the wrong choice and you feel guilty all the time. So you don't feel worthy enough to stand and represent and lead your family because I am not my pastor we say. I'm not worthy enough, we say. We debase ourselves instead of recognizing that we are the priest of God, the high priest in our own home to, to rule and to lead our families. See, where church is supposed to take place is not a building. It's in your families. You're supposed to be the priest of your household, but you've got to come to understand who God made you to be. Let me give you a scripture. For you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, hear the word? Royals, kingly. A kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. Darkness means lack of light or ignorance into his marvelous light, into revelation and truth. Mm. You're supposed to operate in your home as a pastor. You shouldn't have a pastor come do for you what you're supposed to do for your family. You, This is your dominion. This is where your authority lies. So, husband, lead your wives. Lead your family. Stop waiting to go to a church to get prayer meeting and have a worship service. Do it in your house. Your house is the house of God in your own building, but your temple is where God dwells. So it's there with you. You're not doing it alone. We got to take our authority back and start to walk in self-control. So the challenge for you and my, me is during this time, are you walking in self-control? You've never been taught how to do it, have you? I'm here to help you with that. Because the whole idea of walking in the spirit is walking in self-control. If you don't know how to walk in the spirit, how can you worship God then in the spirit? Mm, drop my glasses. <laughs> I dropped the mic. <laughs> If you don't know how to walk in the Spirit, how can you worship then God in Spirit and truth when you don't know how to do it? Oh, God, help us. The problem you and I struggle with, when we hear a lot of people preaching a lot of stuff at us, they never tell you the how or the why. This is believe God by faith. Have faith. Trust God. It's all nice and good. And you go home and try to figure out what does it mean by having faith. Here's the, here's the next question. Most of us have prayed and believed God for things. 
And when you pray, don't get answered. What has been the response you've gotten? Well, brother, sister, you just lack faith. You just need to ask God for more faith, right? You've heard this said. You have heard it. That when you pray for something or you believe God for something or for someone and it doesn't manifest, it's because you either lack faith or you need to ask God to increase your faith. Is faith your problem? Hmm. Faith is never your problem. Let me give you the disciples. The Bible said there was a man in the Bible who brought to him his son and asked the disciples to heal the son. The Bible tells the disciples, this man's son, when the demon come upon him, he was thrown into water or tried to burn with the fire. So he brings him to the disciples to heal them. And the Bible said the disciple went to him and tried to heal the boy, but they couldn't cast them out. Then Jesus, looking down from where he was watching them trying to heal, cast this demon out, looked down and said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you do that? And another word he used there, he said, you perverse and unbelieving generation, how long should I be with you? He said, bring the child to me. And the Bible said immediately he healed the child. Now, because the disciples had failed, he had mercy upon them. So when he left that the healing, went to room, the disciples said, how come Jesus, we could not heal the child? Do you remember the story in the Bible? He said, well, I'm going to give you some mercy. This kind only come out through prayer and fasting. All right? They were trying to heal him the way they knew how. But here's the key to that statement he told them. Why could they not heal him? So they said to him, well, increase our faith. Listen to this. They're asking for more faith because they believe they didn't have no faith to heal the child. And Jesus said, uh-uh, you misunderstood. But I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, what did he do? They're asking for more. He decreased it. They're asking for more faith. He brings it down to the size of a mustard seed. I want, wait a minute. I thought it was the increase of faith that makes things happen. He said, no, you misunderstood. It's not the size of your faith. If you have faith the size of mustard seed, you can speak this mountain, say, move in the sea, and it will obey you. So we've been told when things don't happen, it's because I don't have enough faith. Not true. Can I tell you what your problem is? It's your obedience is the problem. Faith ain't your problem. It's your obedience. The disciples disobeyed him. That's why the, the demon wouldn't go. They were unbelieving, and he called them perverse. They did not believe the power they were given that they could cast the demon out. It wasn't a faith issue. It was an obedience issue. So if you want prayer answer, walk in righteousness. Stop trying to live in sin. Expect God to break his own rule to bless you. That's not the condition he said. Remember, God cannot violate his own law. He watches over his words to perform them. He makes sure not one word go out and doesn't accomplish the task for which he's been sent. When he sent his word, it will accomplish it. But it's all based on obedience to his word and to his commandment. So most of the problem we're having when it comes to prayer is not a faith issue. It's an obedience issue. By the way, that's the reason why we always have people praying for us. My question is simply this. I can pray for you better than you can. Who knows your heart better than you do? Why do you need me to pray for you? Can I tell you why? Because you don't feel worthy. You think you're not good enough. You're devouring yourself based on your bad choices. And so you don't feel worthy. So you'll find someone like me who you believe is walking in the spirit and say, pray for me. You're going to be a mediator between me and God. So I want you to ask God in my behalf. Really? Really? Is that how this works? I recommend you learn to walk in the spirit. You don't need me to pray for you because no one can pray for you better than you can. And who can discern your heart better than you and God? Who can discern what is right and what's wrong? That's why whenever we go to God and pray, he always asks us, there's some issues in there. Holy Spirit, since I try and tell me, you need to confess that unforgiveness or that bitterness or hatred. Or you've said something. Why does he ask you to clear it up? Because if you come before God with that hanging over your head, you don't feel worthy enough to enter God's throne. You go into God's throne with your head bowed down, acting like you're humble. When he said, you're supposed to walk into my presence with boldness and with confidence. Can I tell you what? If you don't walk into God's presence 
with boldness and confidence. Guess what you just told me by your fruit? You're walking in disobedience. Because everyone knows when you do what is right by law, even if the cop stops you, if you have your registration, insurance, and so forth on you, there's no fear in you if you weren't breaking the law. Fear comes a byproduct of disobedience. When you're walking right, boldness and confidence is how you walk because you have no fear because you're not breaking rules and you go before the king with confidence because you know you're doing what he asked you to do. Hmm. Oh my. That's not where I'm going. Let me take it. But I need you to see that. So when you worship God, you said you got to worship me in spirit. That means you got to check you. Check your heart. Is it right before God? Check your mind. What are you thinking? Check the flesh. What have you done? Here's the key. That's the reason why you're finding out all our churches, the same people get saved every week. Hmm. Isn't that funny? The same people. Every week they're in front of them. I need to be saved again. Why? They've never been taught how to walk in self-control. They've never been taught how to walk in righteousness. They've never been taught how to walk in self-control. So because of that, they're getting saved over and over again because here's the key part. If you're not told that your sin that you commit is a three-in-one thing, you commit three sins in one, and you believe only what you need to confess is what you did, that's why even at the altar, your mind's back home thinking about you're going to do it again. Hmm. That's why you still feel guilty when you go home. You beat yourself over three or four days because you still feel guilty. Why? Because you only confess what you did. You never confess what you thought. You never confess your choice. You're still guilty. And by the way, in case you think I'm talking off the top of my head, can I give you the scriptures? <sighs> Psalms 51. Write this down. This is extra bonus for you. It's not part of my teaching, but I'm giving you just a bonus because you need to see it for yourself. So you understand David was a man of the God's own heart, correct? David loved God. God loved David. So God had to show David, a man who was a murderer, who was an adulterer, how to write to confess. So what did he do? In Psalm 51, God demonstrated to David how to confess properly before God. Here it is. I want to look at Psalm 51, verse 1 through, uh, we will go to verse 4. Listen to this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of your tender mercies. Listen to the words. Blot out my transgression. Mm. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Mm. And cleanse me from my sin. Here's my question to you. If the sins that we commit were all the same, why does David have all three sins here and in three separate lines versus not having in just one line? Because all the sins are not the same. Hmm. See, you and I have been told when we confess before God, confess your sins. And God has been asking you, which sins are you confessing? And most of the time we say, what we did. And God said, what about the other two? What are the two? There are no other two. Yes, there is. The word there, iniquity, means thought and intent of the mind. Your sin began in your mind. Transgression means choice of the heart. Transgression means presumptuous sin. You presume, knowing that what you're about to choose to do is wrong, you're going to do it anyway, so you presume upon grace that if I do it, God's going to forgive me. Mm, that's what that word transgression means. Mm. And sin means manifestation in the flesh. That's called the fruit. That's why Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know. What was he trying to tell you? Based on the fruit manifesting, you knew what thought they had and what choice they made that manifest the fruit. For instance, a man who's walking around falling sideways on the sidewalk, drunk, well, you don't have to be a, a, um, a prophet to know that the man had a thought, he made a choice, and drunkenness is not the problem. That's the manifestation called the fruit. So when you see him stumbling, stop trying to fix the drunk man. Fix the seed, not the fruit. If you're going to get rid of a tree in someone's life, may I recommend you cut out the seed. Destroy the seed, cut out the root, the tree goes away. 
So what we're trying to do, we're always trying to fix drunkenness. Drunkenness is not his problem. Drunkenness is the fruit. It's the thought he had of some damage or pain or hurt or loneliness that led him to a thought, I need a drink. You know, this, this kind of virus is kicking my butt and I can't stand it. And man, I need something to calm my nerve. Well, he had a thought, did he not? Then when he thought about one more drink, he thought about like my stash in the, in, in the cabinet. So I'm going to get my Bacardi or my bottle of Naughty Head. I'm going to get me a little sip. <laughs> he started with a sip, but he became blasted. He drank the whole bottle. He made a choice. And out of that came the fruit, his drunkenness. So drunkenness is not the problem. Drunkenness is the fruit. Hmm. Same thing with drug addicts. Same thing with adultery. Same thing with fornication. We keep on trying to fix people from the fruit perspective instead of from the seed perspective. You don't fix people's problem from the outside in. You fix it from the inside out. Oh, my. That should help somebody to hear that tonight. The problem you see going on in people's life, the, the fruit is a cry for help. That's not the problem. That's the fruit. You need to fix this problem from a seed perspective. Cut out and get rid of the seed. Nothing grows. Cut the root out, the whole tree dies. The, rent, the, the root, the trunk, the leaves, the branches all go away. Hmm. So you don't have to tell a person that they're sinners. They already know that. You don't have to tell them what they're doing is wrong. They already know that. But you have to see them from a different perspective. All right. Let me move on from here. That's not even where I'm going, but I didn't give you that as an added bonus. Next, let's go to the next verse. Let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 44 through 50. My God, there's so much I get. I got to pick up the pace here. I'm running behind already. Let me pick up the pace. Our father had a tabernacle. This is, this is by the way, this is Acts 7, verse 44 through 50. Our father had a tabernacle of witnesses in the wilderness as he appointed, instructed Moses to, to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Uh, verse 45, which of our fathers having received it, received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land to possess by the Gentile, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David asked, not God, because David was a man of the God's own heart, and God didn't need a building, but he knew he would make David happy, gave him permission to build him a house. God didn't need a house. God didn't want a house. You're going to read the story. You're going to find that God said, David, you don't need to come to me and ask to build me a house. I'm good. I'm the one who gives to all. I said it before in Acts chapter 17. God said, I'm the one who gives to everyone, everyone what they need and what they want. They don't need to give me stuff. I don't need anything. I think I'm good all by myself. This, by the way, can I mess you up a little bit? Can I throw this one in there? God don't need your money. Uh-oh. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I know. I know it's just close to home. I'm touching the tide, aren't I? When did God ask you for your money? What does he need your money for? Can I give you scripture? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. The cattle in a thousand hills is mine. What do I need your music paper for? I think I'm good without your paper. I'm good. I was God all by myself, took care of myself before you showed up, and I'll be God by myself when you're all left and gone, and I still won't need nothing from you. So keep your paper to yourself. Uh-oh. Ouch. Ouch. I know. That's a tough one. Oh, we'll talk about that one another time. Let me keep going. But Solomon built him a house because it said David was a man of blood. David came, but he killed, he killed people. So God said, don't build my house. Verse 48. However, the most high, there you go again. Underline this verse, verse 48 of Acts chapter 7, verse 48. However, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. How much time must God tell us? I'm not in building made with man's hands. As the prophet says, 
Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? My Has my hand not made all these things? I'm good. I don't need a temple. I don't need a house. I'm good by myself. You can't build me a house. God don't dwell in those buildings. All right. Now let's go on now. Prove this. The first question is answered. We now prove that God doesn't dwell in building made by man's hand. We now must now prove who is the temple God dwelling. I'm going to talk about you now. Let me show you a picture of yourself in the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 17. To prove to you that you are the building of God and that the church, the man-made structure, is not. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Is that in your Bible? That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 17. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. What? Mm -mm. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master building, I have laid the foundation and another build on it. But let each one take heed, as a warning here, how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which was laid. In other words, if you are the building of God, and, and he said God's the one who laid the foundation, be careful how we build on it. So guess what man's going to interpret? Well, if God wants a church or a building, I'm going to build him a building called a church. Which there's a warning here. Say, so be careful what you build. Because why? What you build is going to be tested by fire. So let's see what man has built God. After reading this, they misunderstand what God told them. Because they never understood that you are the building of God. You don't need a building or structure. It's nice to have a building. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against the church. It's a place to gather, and you get more people in one place, and you can teach them all together. I'm not opposed to that. But we have now magnified the place of idolhood, and that's our problem we're having. Because we can't see ourselves outside that building. The coronavirus has forced us out the building, out the box. And now we have to make a decision. <laughs> Do I stay home now? Can I walk on my own self-control? Or do I go back to the box? Listen to the scripture. Come off from amongst them and be ye separate. Mm. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Mm. I'm just telling you, I'm free from the box. I don't like box living. I like freedom. I'm going to stay free. You can't put me back in the box again. I've been set free. And I'm staying free. Thank you. All right. So we now stand with the building. Now, if anyone builds... On this foundation, here's the word we're building. We're building gold. Isn't that us? Is it God or us? We build by gold. Silver, precious stone, wood, hand straw. Don't we build building with these materials in it? I think we do. Each one work will be clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Whatever we have built that does not last, in the day when the fire comes to burn things up, then guess what? Then you build the wrong, use the wrong material built on the foundation God laid. His, his foundation he laid was you and me. <clears throat> so our building will burn to the ground according to this. And the fire will test each one's work for what sort it is. If anyone works which he has built on indoors, he will receive a reward. If anyone work is burnt, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So number one, you recognize you are the field of God, you're the building of God. Next scripture. Let's go to the next one. This is in 1 Corinthians. Oh, no, sorry. I'm not even done yet. I don't think I'm done. Let me make sure I'm done here. No, I'm sorry. I'm not done yet. Of um, 9 through 17. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Oh, 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 oh. Are we saying here you are the church? Hmm. 
I think that's what he's saying. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, where does he dwell? Question, to prove to you that you are the church. When Jesus come back for his church, hmm, a lamb without spot or wrinkle, is he coming back for the building with a T on it? Or is he coming back for you? I think you figured that one out. He's coming back for you. Couldn't be a building then, could it? Hmm. So you, do you not know, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, defile it, bringing stuff that should not be there, living in a way that violates the law of God, God will destroy you. Is that in your Bible? What? Hold, hold on, hold on. Let me read it again. If anyone defiles, how do you defile it? By bringing idols, bringing in things that we now know violate the law of God in, living in a way we know violate the law of God. It's called defiling the temple. But here's one you'll never attribute to defiling the temple. Now, this one, you got to put your seatbelt on. This was a tough one. It's going to be close to home. This is going to hit you right between the eyes. So prepare yourself. Did you know that obesity is defilement? Oh, I know, I know. Ouch. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt your feelings. It's called the spirit of gluttony. One of the judgment you'll see in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus judged the church, he said, because you ate food offered to idol. It's in the book of Revelation. Why food? If food is not. Now, I'm not saying food is sin. I'm just saying when you lack control, food become an idol to you. You start to worship at the altar of food. When you lack self-control, when sugar becomes your go-to drug, most of us are addicted, and how I noticed I was too, to food. Hmm. Let me give you just a little insight on food and sugar. When I discovered that sugar is our problem that's creating uh, inflammation and um, pain, um, eye issues, um, nerve issues, diabetes, blood problems, it's the sugar processed by men. I decided to get off sugar about three weeks ago. Within three weeks, this man who stands before you has dropped from pants waist size 44 down to 40. I went from 265 to 240. My snoring has gone away. Headaches have left. I have no pain in my body, knee, joint, or anything else. And all I did was change my eating habit because I want to take care of the temple. You've got, there's a judgment here. It's been written in scripture. If you defile this temple and you destroy God will, he said, I'm telling you, I'm going to wipe you out. I will destroy you. He's very serious about that. For the temple of God is holy. Hmm. So the scripture that people say, well, there's no one perfect. There's no one. There's no one is perfect. Well, the word has never should have been perfect. The word should have been holy. It means that your body has been separated and set aside for God's own use for a purpose. Oh, by the way, and he said, which temple you are. You are God's temple. It is holy, and you are his temple. How much care must God tell him? By the way. Let me take you a little back to worship. It just crossed my mind as I mentioned the word holy there. The word in worship in our singing that we should have been using is the word glory. Did, don't we say in worship when we sing a song, we are glorifying God? So we add as a part of our worship, Lord, you are glorious. I glorify you, Lord. We lift our hand and we glorify God. 
The problem we have, we don't know what that word glory means. Can I show you what glory means? I'm going to show you to you in scripture. Actually, I'm going to show it to you in a minute. Let me show you what glory means. That glory doesn't mean in heaven to come, nor does it mean singing songs. While there's some who have been created to sing, that's what the glory means at all. I'm going to show you the glory of a thing. And then you'll understand when you say the word glory, you're going to know what you're talking about. You're worshiping God in spirit and in truth because you understand what you're saying. I'll show you in one minute what glory means. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Do you not know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Did he say in the building? Or did he say you? I think he said you. Where does he dwell again? In you. So when he didn't go to church this past week, did the Holy Spirit leave you? I don't think he did. Did he forsake you? Hmm. Has he been with you? I think he has. So what's going on? <laughs> why is it you're not feeling him? Can I tell you why you're not feeling him? You have never learned how to access him? Then your sin and your disobedience create a barrier between you and him. One thing you need to know, God is a promise keeper and a covenant maker. He said, if you confess Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. The Holy Spirit is now given to you. He now lives within you. Because why? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. So he gave you a gift as a result of your decision. However, the problem we're having is when he comes in, you and I have never been taught how to activate him. So all of us have the Holy Spirit, but you have him on standby. He is dormant. And only once in a while, he gets to get a word in, and we get excited about the word. Ooh, I got a word from the Lord today. And ooh, right? Well, let me say something about the Holy Spirit. He just don't want to give you a word. He wants to be a very present help anytime you need him. He wants to speak to you 24-7. He's going to be the voice that when you open your mouth, he fills it. He wants to be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But the reason why you and I can hear him, because you never learn how to activate him by walking obedience. He operates on the fuel of obedience. He operates on the fuel of righteousness. When you act disobedient, his job is to convict you of that so he can get you back right, so you can have access to God. When you walk in disobedience, you're closer to death than you ever were before in your life because you move from your place of protection in the land of obedience and righteousness in God to the land of disobedience and righteousness, which is where the devil dwells. That's the reason why most of us spend our days talking about the devil and you ain't talking about God. Guess what you're telling me by talking about the devil? I know how you're living. Oh, that devil, he sent carnivores. That devil made my mama sick. That devil stole my money. That devil gave me drugs. Oh, did he? Did he? Hmm, or are you making some choices? <laughs> Let me say it. Both sides, God and the devil can influence, but neither side can force you to do anything. Let me say it again. Both sides, the devil and the side of God, can try to influence you, towards the right play or towards the wrong way. But neither side can force you. Can I tell you why? Free will. Your power of choice. You get to choose which side wins or lose. That's why God keeps telling you, Deuteronomy chapter 28, I set before you two paths. Life, death, blessing, cursing, obedience, disobedience. You choose. Which do you want? But let me help you since you don't know. Choose life. What have you been choosing? Disobedience. 
Now you understand why your life looked like the cursed life. My wife said to me one time, she said, you know, I'm reading the Bible. I'm doing what they tell me to do in church. And when I read the Bible, my life looked like I'm in the, it's the cursed life. My life looked like it's under the curse. <sighs> oh, I don't know if I want to touch this one tonight. You may want to hear it because I have to shock you. When you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, most of our lives look like the curse. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It doesn't look like the side of blessing. Hmm. Could it be we're making some choice to violate the law of God while our life looks like it's a cursed life? By the way, obedience. In the obedience side of Deuteronomy chapter 28, have you read in there sickness, disease, fear, anxiety, stress, worry, famine, pestilence? Have you read that anywhere in there under the blessings? He said, blessed shall you be coming in and going out. You need a bowl, your offspring, your, the land, your children, your sons, your daughter. Everything you touch shall be blessed. You shall be blessed in the field, in your kneading bowl. Everything you touch is blessed. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no fear, there's no anxiety, there's no worry. Right? Now, he said, if you break my law, now all the stuff I just described shows up underneath the curse. You shall have fear in the noonday. Curse shall you be coming in, going out, knee bowl, ulcering, sickness, boils, hemorrhoids, disease, confusion. All that falls under the curse. Pestilence falls under the curse. <laughs> I'm not saying God's doing it. I'm saying our choice creates some stuff. We need to look at it and understand what is happening. If I'm claiming to be righteous and my life, my life looked like as I read scripture and I read the things that appear underneath the curse and it doesn't line up to what's, and it lines up to what is happening to me with the fear, anxiety, stress, worry, the, the, the fear and the, the, all the stuff happened to me and it looks like it's the curse, I need to check myself. How am I living? How's my obedience? And get back to the other side when I'm blessing everything I put my hand to do. By the way, In the blessing, because here's what you need to know. You and I were created in the image of God. Image means reflection and shadow of God. Where your blessing and mine lie is in your ability to obey and walk right before God. Have you noticed in your life when you're walking right and obeying God, you ain't got a problem with God, you hear from God, you're close to God, you feel the presence of God? Here's my question to you. When is the only time in your life you don't feel God's presence? Isn't it when you're disobeying him? God seemed to have moved, right? I don't feel God's presence no more. Where is the Holy Spirit God? I don't feel good because I don't feel his presence like I used to before. Well, check yourself. What choices are you making? Remember now, what you need to know, when you're walking right, the devil has to stand back and watch God blesses you and favor you. He can't touch you. When you're walking in righteousness, God can't pull you out unless you give him permission. That's why we have to cry out to him and give him permission to interfere on our behalf. So here's the key. Whenever you're walking right, right, the devil knows I can't get you from God's favor. So there's only one way I can get you out from leaving God and getting you and I to make a choice to come to me. He offers you something. It is called a temptation. He's asking a question. What will it take to get you and me to disobey God and come over to my side? What's the deal? What deal do you need? And he offers some of us a beautiful girl. Money, all this stuff, drugs, what it takes is what will it take? And so the temptation come, and then he says, Now I know you got back be back turned to me, but come on now, I'm always making a deal. What you need? Come on, let's make this deal. And this is what we're saying. Oh, just this one time. <laughs> so we turn our back. You know, God can't stop you in this. Remember, it's free choice. You turn your back in God, you go to him. You get the pleasure for a moment, but after that. Guilt, condemnation, and fear. Have you noticed these three hang together? Guilt, condemnation, and fear. So my question to you, 
If God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, where is this fear, condemnation, and guilt coming from? Could it be from your disobedience? Hmm. Think on that. So the devil knows I can't get to you when God favors you. And in case you doubt what I'm saying, I need to go back to read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. How the devil has a testimony in Job chapter 1 when God said, Have you noticed my servant Job? Listen to his testimony. This is the devil talking in Job chapter 2. Yeah, I've noticed him, but you put a hedge around him, around his possession. I can't touch him. But remove the hedge. Did you hear it? Did you hear what the devil said? He said, When you're walking right, because Job feared God, he was an upright man, he shunned evil. And he feared God. And because of that, God put a hedge around him. So when the devil came bragging in that meeting when the sons of God met together, God had to embarrass him by using a man on the earth who he had dominion power to rule over, but on the earth he could not touch Job because Job was a righteous man. And so the hedge was around him. He said, but you have to remove. God, remove the hedge. And I get you to get this man to curse you to your face and die. So Job was walking right. The devil was on the earth, and the devil couldn't touch his stuff. But once he gave him permission to remove the head, you saw immediately when I attacked Job's family and killed his kids, and you saw the attacks begin. Job was a righteous man on the earth. Wow. So you need to understand your natural state as a believer and your place of favor and blessing is in the place of obedience and righteousness. Then you can claim all the covenant of Scripture. But if you're walking in disobedience and unrighteousness, you cannot claim the covenants because you're violating is called a breach of contract. The moment you don't follow the stipulation written by the one who put the contract together, he's no longer obligated to keep his part of the agreement because you violated your side. It's called a breach. Why would God violate his own covenant to give you what is contradictory to his nature? If you stand up with the contract, it's obedience and righteousness, then God can't bless you in disobedience and unrighteousness. Now, he shows you some mercy, but he can't bless you. So when you hear someone say, but I can't understand, I'm trying to walk right, and, and that man's over there wicked, and God blessed that wicked man. God ain't blessing that wicked man. God can't violate his own law. God puts himself up below his law. He himself obeys his own law. That's why he watches over the word, his word to make sure all men come to pass, because he can't violate his own law. But in, God ain't blessing that wicked man. That wicked man just discover the principle of finances and how to steal and how to rob. That's all. Not God blessing him. God doesn't bless unrighteousness. It's not his nature. He blessed righteousness and obedience. So that's where the tug of war happens with you and me every morning. You're faced with two choices. Every time you get up, every time you turn, and every second of the day, you and I are making choices. That's the greatest gift God gave to man. And that's why I say over and over again, the greatest gift God gave to man was not eternal life. Why? Because we all have eternal life. Every human being on this planet is a spirit. That's where they're born. They have a soul that can never die. That's not the greatest gift they gave to us. The greatest gift God gave to man was the power of choice. Hmm. So your choices is creating a problem or a blessing. So you get to choose. So that's what God gave you. Let me continue. I got to get moving. I'm running out of time here. I can see my time ticking down. All right. Let me get you to the place I want to get you to. So we now understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 14, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Let me give you Old Testament time. 
And this is the story in there because it's talking about Abraham's descendants and that the, the message of the scripture is the kingdom. So I threw this in there as a bonus. This is what I'm talking about Abraham here in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. It says, verse 11, and also God said to him, speaking about Abraham, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, you never ask the question why everything on the earth is based on multiplication. We have addition, subtraction, and so forth. But the whole idea when it comes to God's laws about multiplication, because he decreed this stuff. He decreed man to multiply. That's why even in Africa, where they can't afford to feed themselves, they're still having kids. They can't help themselves. God decreed it so. Be fruitful and multiply. That's why no matter what happens, how popular we get, men will always multiply because God spoke it into existence and he can't go back in his word. And once he speaks it, if you let man, he'll overpopulate the planet. <laughs> it's been a decree from the beginning of time. That's why he can't stop himself. <laughs> kids everywhere. You got 20 kids. You can't take care of yourself. But you're going to keep having kids. There's decrease of be fruitful, you multiply. A nation, which is a government, a nation, I said earlier, a kingdom is a government, a nation, um, and a company of nation shall proceed from you. And kings, hold up, hold up, hold up. I just told you last week that you and I are kings. Now, you're going to see right here in Scripture, God tells you, Abraham, which we're part of that covenant of Abraham, and Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and that means that we are a descendant of Abraham. So guess what he made you and I? We are all kings. And the Bible says here, and kings shall come forth from your body. That means you and I are kings. I remember I said, kings birth kings. In this case, he birthed princes who becomes kings. Right? Okay. Let's go next door. Let me show you glory. I'm going to show you a little bit of glory. Because you need to see what glory means. So in worship, we say we glorify God in our worship. I need to share what glory is. But some, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 49. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 49. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? Verse 36, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow you do not sow that body that will be, but mere grains. Uh-oh, I'm talking about glory here. I need you to see this. Hmm. You sow mere grains, but out of the grain, something's going to manifest itself. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, speaking about outer space and so forth, the moon, stars, so forth, and terrestrial bodies, which is earthly bodies. Now listen to the word so you can see what the word glory means. But the glory of the celestial is one. So let's just say the space body out in outer space. And terrestrial is another body. The glory of the terrestrial is another. So now, if we're going to look at the word glory and terrestrial, celestial, let me take it a little further before I get to the word glory. There is one glory of the sun, and we need to ask what the question, what is it? What is the glory of the sun? Hmm. Question, does the sun sing? Does it dance? Does it shake? How does the sun glorify God? Hmm. I'll get back to that in a minute. Another glory is of the moon. Question, does the moon dance? Does it shake? Does it lift its hand? How does that, it glorify God? We need to define the word glory, and that's why we have a struggle. We think glory is lifting hands, dancing, and shaking. So we say it's the glorifying God. Is it? Now, I'm not saying it's not a part of it for those who are called to do that. 
but it can't be for all of us because we are seeing here different objects created by God is glorifying God, and they're all unique unto themselves, and they don't all have the same glory. So we need to define the word glory. I'm going to show you to you in a minute. And to another, he said, the, another glory of the stars. What's the glory of the stars? For one star differed from another star in glory. So also the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it's raised in corruption. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Oh, there's another word. The body, which was dead, is raised in glory. I thought glory was singing and dancing. A body raised in glory. Interesting, huh? All right, we look at that in a minute. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I'll explain to you what that in a minute. But let's go to the word glory. The, the word glory, and by the way, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus glorify the Father? Yes, he did. How did he do it? Hmm. Remember I said, if you want to know what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to manifest, study Jesus. Question, is there any way you read in the Bible that Jesus was lifting his hand to the Father and say, oh, Father, I glorify you? Is that what he did? Now, I know he lifted up his hand. And we now know with the five, two fish, five loaves, he lifted it up. He gave thanks and broke and break it, right? So he glorified the Father in that, correct? So we know he did that. Is there any way the Bible said he danced? Before God, oh, I'm the dance ministry. I'm getting my dance on because you know it's my ministry. Mm. And his, we say it's called glorifying God. Mm. Mm. We, gotta, we gotta look at this next. Is there anywhere you see Jesus kept on telling the Father, "I love you, Father. I love you, God. I love you, my Father. I love you." Mm. He said, "His Father said, I, in Him I am well pleased." But he didn't have to go around telling the Father he loved them. Now, what if love? Is tied to your obedience. And once you obey him, you ain't got to say it. Ah. The one who loves me is the one who obeys me. Remember I said deductive versus inductive reason? That means if there's one who loves him, obeys him, then the one who does not love him does not obey him. Uh-oh, sons of righteousness versus sons of disobedience? <sighs> Question. We now know the father loved the son, the son loved the father. But the son didn't walk around and really tell the father, I love you, father, like most of us do, right? We, Lord, I love you. And Lord said, you're loving me who you have not seen. You can't love your neighbor who you see. There's something wrong with your statement. There's something wrong with your statement. How can you love me whom you have not seen but can't love your neighbor who you see every day? Something's wrong. I hear your words. You're honoring me with your words, but I know your heart ain't right towards your neighbor. How about I fix your heart with your neighbor if you're going to tell me you love me? Your obedience is the proof. So obey what I just tell you, go fix with your neighbor, and then you can come to me and offer your sacrifice and your gift to me, and I can receive it. <laughs> Ooh, so let's look at glory. So glory means, what if the word glory means? The full manifestation of your purpose. The full manifestation of your purpose. Let me show you. So we now know, he said, there's different types of body. So I told you celestial means bodies in space are out of space, right? Up in the sky or heavenlies. I told the terrestrials their bodies on the earth. And God says, well, here's the next question was asked. How does a fish who doesn't have a voice, who don't dance, how does he glorify God? By 
swimming. That's the glory of a fish. What is it you know if a fish stops swimming? It's dead. It no longer glorifies God because its belly is facing up. <laughs> All right. How does a bird glorify God? By flying. The eagle, all the birds, that's how they glory. Do they sing? Some do. But not the type of song you and I singing, because they're not singing for God. That's their nature. That's their purpose. Do you understand? Next. How does the sun, who has no voice as we know it, how does it glorify God? Hmm. By giving you and me heat so that we won't freeze to death. Are you understanding glory? How does the moon glorify God? By shining its light at night when it's dark so that you can see. Are you understanding glory? So when you read the scripture, the whole earth will be filled with God's glory now you understand. So what you need to glorify God, find and fulfill your purpose and your destiny. Then you glorify God. Isn't that what Jesus did? Did you remember what he said? He said, the work the Father has given to me, I have finished. And I glorify the Father. Now he will glorify me by giving me the seat on the throne beside him. Are you seeing it? It wasn't the songs he sang. It was his obedience to the command of God and to the purpose for which he was sent. And because they fulfilled his purpose, he said, then in that, I glorify the Father. Now, I am not saying some have been gifted with the ability to sing. So I'm not saying that singing can't glorify God. Because if you have a voice that can take through song people from the natural realm into the supernatural spiritual realm or just change your thinking, then you that's your glory. But not all of us can sing like you. So we can't all. Remember I said to you right here, the Bible shows you. Each one, each created thing, has a unique glory. So one flower is not like the next. We don't condemn all flowers because it's not trying to copy the other. Each one has its own unique glory. So the glory of a rose, a red rose, and the ladies will tell you this, guys, that when you buy that bouquet of the flower and you bring it to them, what is the first thing that women do? They put it to their nose and they sniff it. Have you noticed this? What are they sniffing for? The glory of the flower. <laughs> That's why I force you when you go to the store to buy roses that they cut off from the root and cut it off and you sit in a bowl. You know it's going to die, but the glory of the flower, the open bulb draws you to it and forces you to snip it. And that's why you pay money for something that's already dead. <laughs> it's giving you its glory. What's the glory of this phone? When it's function according to its created purpose. What's the glory of this mic? When he hears and brings you my voice, are you understanding glory? So what God is after in your life is your glory. In other words, your purpose. Get it. Find it. 
That's where your glory lies, is finding your purpose. The reason for a purpose mean the original reason intent for your creation or for your birth. That because you have been predestined to manifest his glory, God expects a return on the gift and the talent he has placed within you. Mm. He expects a return. Do you remember what he did with the young man who had the one talent versus the one with the two and the one with the five? What did he do with the man who was scared and took his purpose, his talent, and he buried it and said, here's your talent back. You remember what he called him? He, he called him, you lazy and slothful servant. Take the one you have and give to the one who's 10 and cast him into outer darkness. Can I say to you, if a thing is created and it does not fulfill its purpose like your phone, what do you do with it? Do you keep it or do you get rid of it? Hmm. If this mic don't work no more, do I keep it or do I get rid of it? If this pen don't function the way it's created to write and it don't function more, do I keep it or do I get rid of it? So my question to you, why do I get rid of it? It's no longer fulfilling its purpose. It's no longer fulfilling its purpose. So you've got to go. So I'm saying to you, if you do it and you're human, what makes you think God won't do that to you if you don't fulfill your purpose? May I recommend you find it? I'll talk to you in another session about finding your purpose and your potential, what you've been created to do and how you've been designed. We'll talk about it in another session. Let me continue on. i got to finish this up. Verse 46. However, the spirit is, is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spirit. In other words, everything that's going to create with a new body, a new creation, new destiny, must come up with a new design. In other words, when you plant an apple seed, it gives you an apple tree with limbs, branch, root, stalk, and apples with seed in them. Hmm. Question. You were created and born in the form of seed. How much are you carrying inside of you that if you don't find your purpose, the grave is waiting to take you back to the ground and take your purpose back and bury it? I wonder how many people are at the cemetery right now who had such great talent and ability that they were given to them by God for them to bring the world to make it a better place. Well, because they didn't discover their purpose, they died and took it back with their talent and buried it in the ground with themselves. I wonder, what are they going to say to God in that day? Well, Lord, I knew you were a tough master. I knew you reap what you did not sow. And I know you expect something back which you did not plant. But however, here's your talent back. He's going to be upset. So find your purpose, please. <laughs> All right, let go on, let go on. There's more. I got to get this in. The first man of earth was made of dust. The first man of earth was made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. So who is Jesus? He's the owner. The word Lord means the Lord of heaven. Heaven means the abode and dwelling place of God. The first man, man in Genesis 1.26 is not a human. It is a man, a spirit of God called man. Later on, they're going to be called mankind. The next word that is used for man, and you're going to see this in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. Image means reflection or shadow of. And our likeness is a shadow. And give him dominion. Dominion, territory, domain, territory over the earth. He's a king ruling, so he's a king dominion over the fish, bird, air, animal, ground, environment. So in other words, the power and authority you and I have been given is to shape and rule the earth according to the vision and the purpose which we created. You can shape the earth into whatever your eyes can imagine. That's why you have to use your imagination and vision to create the earth, to make the earth look just like heaven. That's what the whole purpose of why we were created, to, to dominate and to rule. So let's make man. So man 
we see in Genesis 1.27, and the Bible said the Lord reached down into the dirt, and it made for that man what is called a humus. The word humus means a dirt. Then he breathed the man ah, into the suit, and the man became a living soul. The word living there means a functional. The body was dirt, like you build dirt on the beach. It's there, but once you put life in it, that dirt got up and moved around. So the, the suit was activated, and man became a living, a functional. The word living there means a functional soul. The suit made him legal in his physical environment to operate on the physical plane called earth. So God had to use the material of the physical plane to make the man legal. That's why everything God made on the earth, the animal, the bird, and everything came from dirt. That's the commonality across the board because they had to be legal and function within their environment God was making for them. But God made the environment more important than the product. That means whatever environment God made was supposed to sustain the product. For instance, when God wanted fish, did he make the fish first or the ocean first? The ocean. That means the ocean is supposed to sustain the fish. Is that true? Isn't that what's happening? When God wanted animal, what did he make first? Did he make the animal first or did he make the land? He made the land first, right? So the land sustained the animal. When he wanted man, what did he make first? Did he make the man first? No. He created Eden. Then he created the man from the dirt of the ground, and he put the man in Eden. So Eden was to sustain the man. Oh, I'm hoping you're seeing it. Oh. All right. Verse 48, as, as was man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are of the heavenly. And as, the, as we have been born... Um, the image of the man of dust, we shall also be bare the image of our heavenly man. In other words, this body is going to be transformed into the image of God. Not the physical one, but our spiritual body, which we'll get for all eternity. Oh, my. Oh, my. There's so much for me to tell you. i got to get to this part, and I'm finishing up here. I'm running out of time, and I have to do the last part, which who should be our teacher in this hour. But I have to maybe reserve that for next week. Verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you, mischief, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. There's so much here. I'm reading here, but I'm not going to go into that because I want to get to the next verse. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. I need to help you here. Because we're reading so much. There's so much I can tell you about the verse before that I can take it through and break it down for you, but I won't have the time right now. But I want to hit this verse. The sting of death is sin. In other words, sin, disobedience, brought into existence, brought to life, death. Let me help you. Death was not available to Adam in the garden when he was walking in obedience before God. What we don't know is how long he was walking before God before he made the choice to disobey him. Death came to existence when Adam disobeyed God and ate from the tree of life. Adam activated death. God warned him, you may eat of every tree in this garden, 
But if the single tree in the garden, you may not eat of it, because in the day you do, he warned him, you're going to die. It's a question. Who gave life to death? Adam did. Hmm. Wow. Adam's disobedience brought forth death. And here's what he did. By disobeying God, it brought forth death. What that tells me then, then there's a law set in motion because it was established then, it was a decree that he disobeyed, death is, is, is coming to effect. That means now built into all our disobedience, death is readily available. Disobedience, if you're not careful, can kill you. Death is built into disobedience. By the way, when you disobey God, you don't need God to punish you. Your disobedience will do that automatically. Not God many times we've been punished. It's your choices that's creating your problem. So make the right choice and you're going to see blessing versus death and pain and sorrow. Okay? So that's what comes out. And he said the strength of sin now is the law. Now, why was the strength of sin the law? Well, man didn't know what he was doing was wrong until there was a law written about it. In other words, it is your knowledge of sin that makes you unrighteous. Let me say it again. It is your knowledge of sin that makes you unrighteous. If you had no knowledge of it, it won't be sin to you. So let me show you what I'm trying to tell you. Hmm. If you've never drank before, drinking and alcohol is not a temptation for you, nor is it a sin to you, because you have no knowledge of it. <laughs> knowledge means it can be a theory to, to experience. So once you taste it one time and you had that drink, there's a tendency, because we are creatures of habit, to repeat the pattern. When you first drank the alcohol, it was terrible. But you now begin the law called the law of repetition, and you drank the second drink. And the first thing was bad, but the second one's like, it's bad, but it wasn't so bad. And the third got easier, and the fourth got easier. And before you fit the sixth, and before long, you're passed out on the floor. What happened? Once you get the taste of it, your knowledge of it now makes it evil or a sin in your sight. But if you have no knowledge of it, so law... When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, brought man to the awareness that his decision and his action was now sinful. The law proved that to the man. The man didn't know it. He thought it was okay. So God said, here's the ten laws I'm going to give you. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. First one. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The man didn't know by doing those things was committing adultery. He thought he was good. But when the now came, his knowledge opened. And that's the strength of the law is your knowledge of it. So that's what the Lord trying to tell us here in this particular verse. But thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there means owner, master. The word Jesus there means salvation. And Christ means breath, wind, or spirit. Each name of God has different meanings. So when you pray, you have to determine who you're talking to. If you call him Lord, it's the Lord that saved you. If you confess Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Hmm, interesting, huh? Each name carries different attributes of God. So if you call Jesus Lord, owner, and master, he'll save you. By the way, that's the reason why Jesus healed everybody in the New Testament. It was a covenantal promise, but also because he called them, the people called him Lord. The word Lord means owner, master. 
They were making him responsible for them. And as a result of them going to him as the owner and master, he was now by covenantal right, had to heal the people because he made a covenant with Abraham to do exactly that, to heal them all. Not based on condition or faith or lack thereof, their believers saved or unsaved, but based on covenantal right. That's the reason why Jesus healed everybody in the New Testament without any conditions. It was a covenantal right of them. He promised Abraham he would. If they call out to me, I will heal them. And I bless you to bless them. That's the reason why they called him Lord. Oh, my, 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 my. I got to get to the teacher, but I can't do it. I am running out of time. I got one minute left. Let me try to throw something else in before I'm done. So the word Lord means owner and master. The word Jesus means salvation. The word Christ means breath or wind, right? Therefore, in verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Believe it or not, I am out of time. I cannot go into the next section with who then, here's a title, and I want to think about it. Who then should be your teacher? Let's be clear who I am. All I am right now is just a substitute. I am not the teacher. So I need you to understand that. You may be hearing from me, learning from me. I'm giving you a lot of information. I'm giving you based on revelation the Holy Spirit revealed to me, but I'm not your teacher. My job is to get you from where I'm at teaching you to make you equal with myself and to let you go and give you back into the hand of the Holy Spirit. Because nowhere in the teaching does it say you're a pastor, preacher, Brother Gary, or anybody that's going to be with you to the end. There's only one promise to you be with you to the end. That's the Holy Spirit. So I am not the teacher. And by the way, the maximum amount of time you can spend with me, and it, by the way, it's a Jewish custom. It was a Jewish activity they did in their day, is three to three and a half years. Now, that's a very, very powerful statement. You have not heard that said. Some of you have been in your building for over 40 years. Can I say something? You've been there too long. Your growth has been stagnated. You've got to get out of the box, get out of the building, because your growth is going to be stagnant. The maximum amount of time you're supposed to be with your teachers three and a half years, because why? If you stay with me beyond three to three and a half years, my voice will become repetitive, redundant, and you'll fall asleep on me because I know I heard that before. Oh, he's boring. Have you noticed most of your people get the best sleep in their church when they're preaching? <laughs> Oh, you can pretend all you want to. You know, your eyes close them out and just, mm, but we know you're sleeping. Come on now. You know you're sleeping. The message don't make no sense. It's putting you to sleep. <laughs> you sit there. You try to stay awake there. Can I tell you why? The reason why the people fall asleep, the most important part of the service should be the time of the preaching. But can I tell you why the preaching is boring? Where there is no revelation. The people cast off restraint. The word restraint means self-control. There's no revelation. There's no truth. So when you hear the message, and the question you must ask, what was it, and I'm going to finish it here, what was it that drew the people to Jesus? Now, we now know in this time there was no choir. There was no dance ministry. The band didn't struck. There was no... <laughs> There was no mind ministry. There was no bullets in reading. So what drew the people out of their home to meet this man in the desert? Can I give it to you? It was the power of the word through revelation. What have we lost in our church today? The power of the word. So guess what we've done? We've gone to entertainment. 
We have the band. We have the choir. The people are dancing. And yet the word put you to sleep. Oh, my. I know. I know. I know it's hard for me to tell you, but that's what's going on. You're seeing it. You know something's wrong. So you get there. You say, I want to get a word. I want to get a word. And you get there. As you soon started preaching, haba, haba, haba. Haba, 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 haba. Your eyes cross. And you start to get droopy. And you slip down your chair. And before long, you're gone. <laughs> Tell me I'm lying. Tell me I'm wrong. I got to end here, folks. I'm sorry. I could go on. But next week, we're going to pick up as who then should be your teacher. I must introduce you to your teacher who's going to be with you to the end. Um, I see some of you have some comments. Thank you very much for your patience, for your time. I know I gave you a lot. I don't expect you to get it in the sessions I'm teaching it. The videos on um, Facebook, you can go back and listen to it slowly if you need to. Um, the scriptures are there for you to check upon what I'm saying to you and make sure it's right. So, and if you have questions or comments, you're more than welcome to do that and write it in. And I'll answer you as quickly as I can. Thank you for each of you who have tuned in to watch tonight. My hope is this was helpful to you, that you can take something that I said and practically apply it tonight. By the way, this coming Sunday is coming up. You don't have to feel depressed because you don't go to the building. May I recommend that you make your house the dwelling place and the abode of God. God is in you. You are the high priest. You have been made righteous. You are worthy of it. God didn't make a mistake when he chose you. You are not an accident. You have it within you. You just need to learn how to manifest that great man or woman that's on the inside. Each and every one of, one of you, at the sound of my voice, is actually a Superman, right here, my left side, <laughs> a Superman living in a Clark Kent suit. You are great, and you just don't know it. You don't hear enough. No one encourages you. It's beyond comprehension how great you are. Can I say this? Because I see the reflection, and the image of God in you. You and I are just like God. Same power, same authority, same anointing. And then righteousness was imputed to you through Jesus Christ. You cannot become more righteous based on what Jesus did for you than you are right now. He's imputed his righteousness to you. That's why he renews mercy towards your morning to let you know, though you mess up and though you fall short, I don't see your mess up. I see the reflection and the shadow of God in you. You are great. Be blessed tonight. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. I will continue this and I'll go into the next phase of the kingdom session. My hope is it was helpful to you. And thank you for each one that's tuned in. Oh my, listen to this again. Let your friends watch it. It's an amazing teaching. And I'm not even scratch the surface what you'll learn as I continue to teach. But I know where I'm taking you to, and I know when you get there. And when you start to speak in the spirit, I will pick up on you right away. But the maximum amount of time I will be here to teach is three and a half years. So if you're with me that long, I promise you, you will walk in revelation and truth. I bless you tonight. Have a great night, everyone. And thank you again. Have Be safe. Pray up. Be blessed. Amen.